Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H brighton.org. Church. Thank you, Kyle. Uh, I send greetings to you guys this morning on behalf of Forest Hills. Uh, I was with them this morning and so got to spend some time with them. They send their love to you guys. Uh, we're a network of neighborhood churches. And so there's four City on a Hill congregations throughout the city. And part of our heart is to help start more congregations to love and serve our neighbors with Christ. And so uh, if you're new today, uh, really glad that you're here. Our church has been a church plant for about three years, and we've been in this building since August, and we love being here. We love Brighton. We love our neighborhood. And what we typically do as a church is we just go through book by book, uh, studying God's Word. And so we've been journeying through Genesis, and today we get all the way to chapter 18, and it's kind of part two of a message that we talked about last week. And so we're really diving into Abram, uh, which now God has given him a new name named Abraham. He's married to a woman named Sarah. And they are really, really old, like a hundred years old or so. And God has promised them a son and that son has not yet come. And we're watching all of their challenges with trusting God's promise. And is it going to be a payoff? Is it going to happen? And all of their difficulties. Well, there's an interesting part of this uh, scripture this week where you see Abraham do something that we have never quite seen yet in the book of Genesis. He begins to intercede on behalf of other people. He's praying on behalf of Sodom, which we'll get to in a moment. Uh, But I was was thinking about this text this past week. Um, I like basketball. I'm a, a Celtics fan. I used to live in Charlotte. All we had was the Bobcats and the Hornets. If you know them, that's just sad to cheer for. You're always disappointed. Um, But moving to Boston, I was like, I'm done with that old team and I'm going for the Celtics. And so um, what I also liked as a kid, I watched the Chicago Bulls in the 90s and I was a big Michael Jordan fan. In fact, uh, our our worship leader, Brian, uh, was kind enough to uh, give me, I hope this doesn't embarrass you, give me some really uh, cool Michael Jordan shoes uh, from his sort of first year playing uh, basketball. And this is a cool story that relates to our passage from today about the 90s Bulls. Uh, So in 1993, uh, there's this veteran basketball player named Daryl Walker. And he receives a call from the Chicago Bulls general manager, Jerry Krause. And he's like, hey, Daryl, would you be interested in a 10-day contract with us? And given the fact that in this moment, the Bulls won back-to-back championships with Michael Jordan at the helm, uh, Daryl Walker screams out on the phone like, yes, Jerry, absolutely, I'll play with you guys. Because at this point, and Daryl's career, he had played nine seasons with the NBA, but he had never won an NBA championship. And to make matters worse, to start out this 93 season, his previous team, the Detroit Pistons, chose not to renew his contract. So here he is, three months into the start of the season, and Walker has no team to play for. And he feels like his NBA career is over until, ring, 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 Jerry calls, and here come the Bulls, right? So this is a 10-day contract, that ultimately turns into another 10-day contract, which turns into a contract for the rest of the season, the season in which leads the Bulls ultimately to the ever-desired NBA Finals. Now check this out. This is what I think is interesting. The dude plays a total of five minutes in all six games. His contributions, a turnover and a missed free, uh, free throw. That's what he added. Now again, he's still better than I would ever be. Dude would crush me on one-on-one, no doubt. But dude gets no points, no blocks, no steals, nothing. 
arguably detracted with the turnover and the missed free throw. And yet he still wins the NBA championship. And the question is how, right? How is that possible? And the answer is he won it through the work of others done on his behalf. Christians, we kind of know where we're going with this, right? It's a really Christ connection here. The victory earned by another, namely Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, the other Bulls, was a victory that was accredited to Walker even when Walker did not perform perfectly. And oddly enough, that's exactly what our passage is actually all about today. It's namely about this, how the righteousness of another can be a righteousness accredited to you by faith. And we really learn the gospel in its maybe clearest sense in this exchange between Abraham and God. So that's what we'll see today as we answer our title question. If you're taking notes, this is the sort of main idea we're going to unpack today. It's how does Abraham point us to Christ? So today's passage starts out in verse 22 by giving us a transition from last week. So it says this in verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham, as a contrast, stood before the Lord. Now, if you missed last week, that's totally okay. I'll get you caught up. Last week, we saw that God and two angels were sharing a meal and a promise with Abraham. We saw that God took on a form, not flesh yet, which is foreshadowing how Christ would take on flesh, but he took on some sort of form and came with two angels to share a promise with Abraham. And that promise was being that in one year's time, he and his wife would finally have this miraculous son born to them in their really, really old age. Again, Abraham is nearing 100 and Sarah is getting up there as well. They're past childbearing years. And in fact, arguably everyone's gonna be in diapers. Abraham's in diapers, the baby's in diapers. Everybody's really old in this scenario. But God promises finally, this son's gonna come in one year's time. So he shares this meal. There's a celebration moment. There's joy that's sort of renewed in Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And then at the conclusion of their meal, God says in verse 20 and 21, this. He says, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, it's great and their sin is very grave. He says this, I will go down personally. I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. Now guys, I love in verse 21 here, what it reveals about the heart of God. In that passage right there, I read in verse 21, it shows that God is a God who hears every cry of injustice that takes place in the world in which he created, which means that no level of abuse or neglect, no area of persecution or oppression, and no place of systemic injustice escapes the ears of a God that is attuned to the cries of his creation. He hears them all. And in this passage, we see that God not only hears the outcries, but he draws near to them. He takes injustice seriously, and then he deals with it personally, which is what God will ultimately do with all injustices. In fact, Psalm 140, 12 says this. It says, I know that the Lord will remain, excuse me, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. And so it's with that in mind that Abraham 
does something shocking that we have not yet seen in our entire book of Genesis. Abraham begins to intercede on behalf of the people of Sodom. Like he begins to pray for them, pray for this city before God. In verse 23, it says this, then Abraham drew near to the Lord. And he said, God, would you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Like just, that's, just pause for a moment. And just think about that for a second. Abraham is acting like an attorney on behalf of Sodom here. And this is really wild, right? Because this is the same city that took part in capturing his nephew Lot and got involved in a massive war amongst nine kings that Abraham had to go and rescue. And so Abraham doesn't go to the brewery with these guys. He doesn't hang out. They're not buds. They don't want to sell things together. They're like not really at odds. To my knowledge, Abraham is not really a fan of Sodom, but he's moved with compassion and he begins to intercede for them. And the question, church, is why? Why would he intercede for them? Why doesn't he just sort of let God go in the conversation to execute justice for the needy as Psalm 140 says? Why does Abraham approach God and then intercede on behalf of Sodom? And guys, here's the reason. I think it's because Abraham knows that God is a sparing God. He's a God that's loving and he's also forgiving. And so he's asking God, listen, to do for Sodom what God has done for him. See guys, time and time again, you and I are watching, if you've been in this journey through Genesis, we're watching Abraham be spared by God. Do you guys remember in Genesis 12, when Abraham lied and cheated and sacrificed his wife to another man? And so he loved his own life more than his wife's life. And God spared Abraham in that moment of sin. God even spared Abraham when he was worshiping false gods and rebelling in a land far away from God and his people. God spared him. And even in that moment, God even spared Abraham when he sinfully took a second wife named Tagar, got her pregnant, and then messed up the dynamics of his family. Because Abraham is moved with compassion for others because of the compassion that God has shown him. And so church, I ask you, are your, does your heart move the same way that Abram's does? Do you know how deeply God has loved and forgiven and showed compassion to you? And therefore, does your heart move towards compassion towards others? Or are you just critical of others? If our heart has not grasped a compassion, a, a love, a graciousness towards others, then I want to bring the gospel closer to your heart to see how far God's standards are away from our ability to meet them. But yet God in his love doesn't constantly call us out and send judgment upon us, but he sends his son to give grace and mercy. So church, let me ask you, the compassion that God has shown you, are you giving that compassion to others? What's your relationships look like with people that irritate you? Great setting for this is community group. I didn't look at any of you in particular. If you're in group that I'm in, it's not a jab at you, but just think about who just irritates you that just gets on your nerves in our church and you just kind of want to like trip them on the way out today down the stairs. That's a little graphic, but you know, hopefully you don't do that, but who just irritates you? And if we realize they, they often irritate you because there's, there's probably something you feel that they're doing that 
kind of maybe takes away from your value or your worth or it kind of makes you feel smaller or doesn't, you know, there's something that they do that makes you feel inferior. But the gospel shows us that no one can make us feel inferior, that nothing makes us superior, nothing makes us inferior. We are deeply loved by God and no one is above us. We're all equal in God's image. And so as we think about compassion, we think about God, how did you show us compassion and how do I give that to others? And that's Abraham's framework in this moment. And so with that in mind, with that in Abraham's mind, Abraham approaches the court bench as an attorney in verse 23, he draws near to God. And in this courtroom moment with God, he begins his opening statement in the courtroom with a question. He says, God, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? In a few weeks, we're going to Uh, unpack uh, Genesis 19, which is the story of God in Sodom and Gomorrah. And I've been dreading preaching this passage, to be honest, but the more and more I study that passage, the more I delight in what God is revealing about his grace and his mercy and how he extended the opportunity to turn away and that God is a God of justice and won't let any injustice away from his eyes, but he'll also extend mercy and grace to any who receive it. And so we'll look at that in a few weeks, but that's what sort of Abraham's talking about. God, are you going to wipe away all of the people because of the injustice? And that's his big question. And honestly, this is a really honest question, a really hard question. He knows that not only is a God of a God of mercy, which he's seen in his own life, but God is a God of justice. He knows that God must deal in righteousness with all injustices because he indeed himself is a God of justice. But Abraham's confused a little bit about how this justice is gonna play out with God's mercy. So he sort of asked this question, God, in bringing justice to Sodom, are you gonna like unintentionally bring justice to those who may not deserve it? Because this question shows concern. It shows compassion, but it also really shows his curiosity about the relationship between God's justice and God's mercy. And we're really going to unpack that in the weeks to come. But in this moment, he starts to unravel and understand this relationship. So Abraham then begins this sort of deep investigative intercession on behalf of Sodom. And guys, it's really pretty wild. Let me show you what I mean here. Here's what, how he begins in verse 24, he approaches the sort of throne of God in this moment. There's not a physical throne, but this prayer room throne moment. He's hanging out with God, but then he approaches God, which is interesting term because he's approaching him like an attorney. He's with him already, but then he approaches him to intercede on behalf of Sodom. He says this, he says, God, suppose, suppose there are 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it? for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it. Guys, Abraham is interceding on behalf of Sodom and he's exploring, listen, he's exploring the terms of a possible theological agreement with God, a theological contract with God. He's saying, God, since you love righteousness like so much, but you're also a God of mercy, would you be willing to like, spare the unrighteous people through the presence of 50 righteous people standing in their place? It's a fascinating question. It's a really interesting theological 
argument. He's basically saying, I know what Sodom has done, which we're going to get to. And Ezekiel talks about how they're crying out about the injustice and they're harming the poor and the marginalized. And there's all kinds of sexual sin happening. And there's lots of abuse going on in the city. And the city itself is crying out from the uh, um, um, uh, societally elite all the way down to the urban uh, dense and, and, and poor, uh, dense community. And this is, this is a grotesque scene. And in this moment, Abraham is praying, God, I know there's tons of evil here from the top to the bottom, everywhere in between, but would you be willing to spare them if there were 50 righteous people that were to stand in their place? It's a fascinating theological contract that he's sort of trying to understand from God. And before God answers, Abraham gets a little nervous and he answers his own question. Have you guys ever done that? Like you ask a question to someone, but you're not really sure if you really want to know the answer. And so you kind of jump in on your own. That's what he does. Verse 25, he says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death for the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And so then God answers his question with a really rather surprising response. God is patient with Abraham. He's patient with this prayer. And he responds in verse 26 like this. And the Lord said, Abraham, if I find 50 righteous people in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Because in that moment, I could only imagine how amazed Abraham is in hearing this newfound theological principle. The principle that says God is willing to spare the unrighteous for the sake of the unrighteous standing in their place. Abraham is humbled at this thought. And he says in verse 27, behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord. He's like, ooh, I know I'm on like dicey waters here. Like I'm asking God to make a theological contract with me on behalf of the city. He's like, I'm but ashes and, and dust. Like I'm nothing here. But then Abraham like ups the ante. He's like, hey God, just, just hold on a second. Suppose five of those people are out of town on vacation and there's only like 45 of them. Would you destroy the city for a lack of five? And God patiently says again, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, Abraham is really rather baffled uh, at the wonder of this new theological principle. Again, that God is willing to spare the unrighteous for the sake of the righteous standing in their place. So in that moment, he tries to rush God again in verse 29. He's like, suppose they're 40 though. Suppose they're 40. What would you do then? God answers again, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Again, we see the principle at play. Well, then probably he feels himself walking on some thin ice with God through all of these questions. And so he says in verse 30, oh Lord, please don't be angry at me. I'm gonna speak again. And of course, God is gracious to hear Abraham's prayer. So Abraham continues. He says, suppose though, there's 30 that are found there. And then God patiently answers, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Again, the same gospel principle that God is willing to spare the unrighteous for the sake of the righteous standing in their place. Over and over and over again, Abraham needs to be reminded of this gospel principle. Church, you need to be reminded over and over again of the gospel, amen? You and I need to be reminded of how much God loves you and what he's done through Jesus. Do you recognize what Abram's understanding in this theological principle is what Christ came to do? 
Jesus is the righteous one. He came and lived perfectly without sin. Why? So that you could have his record of righteousness as yours. Friends, this is a hard statement, but all of us, scripture tells us that we've fallen short of God's righteous standard. So we are not righteous. We're not morally good. Although we're not as bad as maybe we could be, we're not perfectly moral. And God has this rule that if we're to be in a relationship with him and end up in heaven one day, we've got to be perfect just as God is perfect, but none of us are perfect. So what did God do? It's in love that Jesus, who is God, came, took on flesh and then took on your unrighteousness on the cross, your record of your past, present, future sins. He took it on himself. And then what did he do with his righteousness? He gave it to you. If you would choose to believe and have faith in Christ the Son. Do you see the theological principle that Abraham is stumbling upon? And he's being, need to be reminded of it over and over again. And so do you. You need to be reminded of just how far God went for you. Some of us in this room, you work really hard jobs. I think probably all of us work hard jobs if we're really probably honest. And some of us are thinking, man, I'm always serving somebody else as a social worker at the hospital. I'm grinding it out for this boss or these coworkers and just working night after night. Maybe you work for the church and you feel that way and your boss is terrible. You know, like you feel like this is awful and you feel like you're serving everyone else. But who's serving you? You're giving up everything, but who's giving up their life for you? And in this moment, you're reminded of what God has done for you. You need to be reminded that someone is always behind the scenes serving you. And this is God through Christ. That God served you so much, he took your life, took the death you deserved. He promises to work out all things for your good. He's serving you when you sleep, he doesn't. Why? Because he's working on your behalf to bring good to you. Do you see this, guys? You need to be reminded of the gospel, just like Abraham, over and over and over again. Guys, we had uh, the membership course at our house this weekend, the Weekender. And I think we had like 12 people or so at the Weekender. It was great. And some of you, you came back, you're here today. And we talked about how one of our distinctives is gospel centrality. We are gonna always share and talk about how the gospel, what God has done for us and what, how it affects all of our life. We're always gonna talk about that. If you wanna fire me as your pastor, you can absolutely do that if you want and you can hear something else. But as long as I'm here to serve you all, we're gonna talk about what the gospel has done for us, but how it practically works itself out in our life. And that's exactly what Abraham has been understanding here. But guys, he doesn't stop at 30, does he? Dude goes for two more rounds with God. Dude's wearing me out. When I'm, when I'm like practicing this from a sermon, I'm writing it, I'm like, bro, this is gonna be the 30, 50, 40, you know, all that. It's like, it's gonna be a long time. He goes two more rounds. He's wearing me out, but he's not wearing out the Lord. Verse 31, Abraham says this, behold, I have undertaken this task to speak to the Lord. He knows what he's doing. This is way to hear. He says, God, suppose there's 20 though found there. And God graciously answers for the sake of the 20, I will not destroy it. Then he says, oh Lord, hey, don't be angry at me. I'm gonna speak again. I'm gonna speak just one more time. And we're all like, praise God, be done with this, Abraham. He says, suppose though, that there's 10 that are found there, just 10. And God says again, for the sake of the 10, I will not destroy it. Then in that moment, they conclude their conversation. Verse 33 says, and the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking with Abraham. It wasn't an abrupt stop. 
There was a completion of the conversation. God went his way down to Sodom. And then Abraham returned to his place. Guys, I love this passage because it's such a powerful and unique narrative that shows us at least, there's lots, but there's at least just two things. Two things in which this passage reveals something about how Abraham points us to Christ. That first thing we see here is that Abraham is pointing to Christ in how, what's revealed in this prayer. What's revealed in this prayer is the gospel. Jesus revealed the gospel most clearly and Abraham is revealing the gospel in this conversation with God. He's learning what theologians call the great exchange, that God is willing to exchange the unrighteous record of one for the righteous record of another so they can have fellowship and unity with this God of righteousness. And this is pointing directly to what Christ has done. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it like this, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering of our sin so that we could be made right with God through the righteousness of Christ. And my friends, that is what the gospel is. And Abraham is pointing us all the way in the future to Christ through this theological prayer. It's revealing us the gospel. Now guys, to be honest with you, here's what I find pretty interesting about this narrative. Why does he stop at 10? Dude's been bothering for a while. 50, 45, 40, 30. It's like, what, are we at like storage wars? Like what's happening here? Like bartering for like a number, but he stops at 10 and then he just sort of goes home. Like why? Why not get down to the obvious one? Saying, God, would you spare this city if there's only one righteous person willing to stand in the gap for all the rest? Like, why doesn't he conclude there? It's like Tim Keller says, it's, it's like he gets to the seventh note in the eighth note scale and he just stops. It's this crescendo moment and it's awkwardly like, don't you want to like seal the odds, Abraham? Like, why stop at 10? Don't you want to seal the odds and get down to one just to make sure that God would maybe spare Sodom? Why? Why stop at 10? And guys, I think it's because Abraham probably knew that there weren't any truly righteous people in that city. I know that I wouldn't be a righteous one in that city if I lived there at that time. Abraham, in fact, knew that his nephew Lot was not perfectly righteous. And boy, guys, we're, we're gonna see that in future weeks. That's gonna be a hot week right there. Abraham also knew from his previous interaction with the king of Sodom, and the many soldiers that were in his army because he rescued Lot earlier in that war of kings prior that they weren't perfectly righteous. Because Abraham even knew of himself that he wasn't perfectly righteous. So he knew that even he could not save them. And so what's happening in this passage is Abraham walks away because he's left longing knowing that there's not even one. And this story is to create a longing in Abraham and a longing in you, the reader, that we've got to have a righteous one come or all of us, all of us are left to receive the punishment of God. Guys, that is not a popular thing to talk about, especially on a Sunday morning at 1030 in Boston. But what this story is to create is this longing. Is there one? Is there anyone that would come and can rescue me from my Sin, forgive me for where I've gone astray. Is there anyone that I can belong to that would love me, forgive me, be gracious to me? 
Some of us think really, really deep, dark thoughts even about ourselves. You don't even like you. And you feel stuck in that place in the stories to create longing. Has there one? Is there one that would come? And church, we find the resolve. We find the solution. We find the beautiful last note in the symphony. We hear this when Christ comes and he takes on flesh. The righteous one has come. But not only is God is God of righteousness, but he's love and mercy. There was not one in Sodom, but there is one who has come. And church, it is through this one that you find what your heart is actually after. You may think it's in that love of a relationship. You're like, man, I've got to be married and I need to belong and I want to have a companion and share my life. And that is a good desire, but it can't become an ultimate desire because no creation can satisfy the gap in our heart that only a creator could. In our marriage, we fight and bicker because we want that spouse to serve us and think about our needs. And all we do is feel like we have to help that spouse out. And it wears you out. The constant fights about what goes in what cabinet and you forgot to pick up this and you didn't take out the trash and we're angry at each other because why we don't feel cared for. It's good to have conversations, good to confront, not saying it's bad. But we find the resolve, we find the conclusion, we find the peace at the end of the scale when Christ has come. Church, are you still looking? Even Christian, are you still looking for the peace that only comes in Christ? Thinking that a circumstance, a new job, the end of another job you don't like, do you think that that circumstance will finally give you the peace that you want? Nope, you know better too, right? The grass is never greener on the other side. By the way, grass is a thing that typically grows in yards other places than Boston. And like, yeah, right, joke. But, but I'm saying like the grass is rarely greener on the other side. No circumstance to get in or get out will bring you peace. It's only the circumstance that Christ has entered into which was the cross and your life. Church, you've got to be reminded of the gospel. Abraham in this moment walked away knowing that there was not a righteous one. Have you walked away from Christ recently? Where have you walked away and been home to like Abraham? He walked away, went home sad, walked away from this. Where have you walked away searching for their one? That's not Christ. Another job, another paycheck, more money, more materialism, another date, another time with pornography, another drink. Where's the one that you're searching after? Is it Christ or is it something else? My goal is not to condemn you or to call you out. It's to call you into something better. The life in which God wants you to have and walking with him in his ways. That's what I love about God here. God came down. It's not that he didn't have the infinite knowledge to know what was going around in Sodom. He likes to enter into the mess, into the hardship, right? It says that God even walked down to Sodom. God, God can just fly down there. He figured out like teleportation before like Endgame and like Avengers, right? Like God figured all this stuff out. If I just ruined it for you, that's on you. It's been a while. Like that's on you guys. Like you're okay. But God loves to enter into this. And my friends, God is through this giving you an invitation to enter into deeper relationship through the righteous one. That's the first thing that we... See here, Abraham points us to Christ and what's revealed through his prayer, which is the gospel. Second and last thing that we see here 
is that Abraham points us to Christ in his intercession, in the actual prayer. Do you guys realize that God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are actively interceding, mediating, praying for you, like your life, like your, your challenges, your struggles. First Timothy 2.5 says this, it says, for there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men. And it's not Abraham. Although that's what you see Abraham doing, mediating between God and Sodom. It says there's only one true mediator between God and men, and it's the man, yet God, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Notice this, that when Abraham said, God, would you forgive them for their injustice? There was no atonement. So God could not answer that prayer. Abraham says, God, would you forgive them? But on the cross, what did Christ say? God, forgive them. And what did God do? Yes, I'll forgive them. Why? Because Christ stood in their place. Abraham could not be the righteous sacrifice. Jesus is the better Abraham, where God would not listen and do the prayer of Abraham because God cannot let injustice go free. He finally concludes it in Christ. At the cross, we see God executing his justice, but also extending mercy because God is willing to withhold or take away the punishment of death that we all deserve. That is not an easy thing to hear, but if God is a loving God, then he must lovingly deal with injustice. He must lovingly deal with evil. And how he does it is he neutralizes it. He cancels it. He deals with it. He gives punishment to it. And you and I have been an affront to God. And so in love though, he takes that sin on himself. This is the beautiful mediation of God. Where Abraham tries to mediate, Jesus actually does. Where Abraham, as Keller says, Abraham risks his life in this theological debate, Jesus gives his life on the cross. This is the beautiful thing that God has done for you. And my friends, even in this moment, let me share with you Hebrews 4 and think about this. This might be familiar, but just think about the intercessory work of God. Verse 14, since then, we have right now, we have a great high priest and a priest would intercede before God and his people. The high priest would speak on behalf of people to God and the high priest would speak God's words to the people. And which is that right now you and I have a high priest that speaks on our behalf and he's passed through the heavens to us and ascended again. This is Jesus Christ, the son of God. Let's hold fast to our confession about him, verse 15. And I love this, for we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with your challenge. Guys, let's be real. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you're sharing your heart with them, you're pouring out your struggles and they like cannot sympathize? Like they just don't get it? Uh, some of us are reading a, a book in our church called Instruments in the Hands of the Redeemer. It's a great book. Talks about this one moment where this uh, lady's really frustrated in her uh, uh, driving through the city and she's uh, late to her uh, appointment at her work. And she's just telling someone how frustrated and discouraged she was. She's late and that sort of backed up her meetings and she hurt the feelings of the person she was late with. And she was just really discouraged with that. And she was sharing that with someone. And someone's like, well, you should have just got off on the other exit. Okay, thanks, Sarah. Like, you know, it's not like super helpful in that moment. Like, 
But what's happening in that moment is that there's an inability to sympathize. Yes, that's true. You can get off on a different exit, but you're missing the heart. And Jesus says he never misses your heart in your circumstance. He is unable to sympathize with every weakness, every sin struggle, every area of depression, anxiety, loneliness, abandonment, injustice, every area of weakness. But he is one who in every respect has been tempted like we have, but yet he is without sin. Let us then with confidence, because he knows we're, we know he's going to care for us. Let us with confidence, and here we hear the phrase again, we draw near. We draw near like Abraham did to God. We draw near to the throne of what? The throne of grace. We can approach the throne of grace because Christ approached the cross of justice. And every time you go to God in prayer, every time, because of Christ's death for you, you get the life of God, extending grace and mercy and help. As we see here, in every time of need. This is a type of mediating intercessory, intercessory God that we have. I think I butchered that word. Forgive me, just hang in there with me, guys. You're really gracious to me as a pastor. We see Abraham tried to do this. He fails. Jesus does this. He's successful. And he does it over and over and over and over again for you. Every single time. So church, where do you need to trust God again in prayer? Where do you need to go to him? and ask him to help you in your time of need. If God helped you in the greatest need, which was your sin and death and hell and eternity, if God stepped in your place to care for you in your greatest need, then God will care for your every need. Amen? Where have you given up on prayer, thinking that God just doesn't care, he doesn't listen, you feel like the prayers just bounce off the ceiling, and you've been waiting in a season like Abraham, just years and years waiting for God to answer. Would you trust God again? He's a God that intercedes on your behalf. And so guys, by way of application today, uh, Brandon led us in a time of intercessory prayer, prayed for neighbors and friends, our church confession. And guys, as we conclude, I wanna lead us in a few brief moments of prayer for a few key things here. Tim Keller, who I've mentioned earlier is a, pastor and author, one of my sort of heroes of the faith and church planting world. He says this, that the secret of Abraham's lively prayer life is his theological depth in this prayer. The essence of this prayer is not asking for things for himself, which is okay. It's not exploring his inner being and his feelings, which again is okay. But what makes this prayer unique and profound is the theological nature of this prayer. Abraham is focusing on the attributes of God. He's praying on the basis of God's nature. So what's happening, he's got, he's got one foot in the attribute of God's justice. He's got the other foot in the attribute of God's mercy. And he's pushing off his prayer on those cornerstones. And he's saying, God, no matter what I pray, I know you're gonna act with justice and with mercy because that's what kind of God you are. And God's with that in mind, I want us to pray on the foot of God's justice and God's mercy for a few things in our city. Brian, I'm going to ask, man, if you guys come forward and I want us to pray like Abraham, like Christ. I want us to pray for three things. First is I want you to intercede for our church. This doesn't replace what Brandon prayed earlier. This is an addition to what is good and right for our church to pray. I want you to intercede this way. Here's how I want you to pray. I want you to pray that God would help our church. Even if you're a guest, I'll count you in that. 
I want you to pray that God would help you and I rest and relish in the depths of the gospel. Like not just like what God has like done for us on the cross a long time ago, but how that practically affects every area of your life now. Would you pray that God would help us rest and relish in the depths of the gospel? In a moment, um, as one pastor said, um, because of what Jesus has done for you, Christian, there is nothing, listen, there is nothing that you can do in the future that could make God love you more. And there is nothing that you have done in the past to make God love you less. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Christian, you can, you can rest from striving and struggling to be enough. Non-Christian guests who have come, so glad you're here. Would you hear that you don't have to earn your way before this God? He paved a way for you to him through the cross. You simply believe it. You receive it. You cannot achieve this. It's what he's done for you. Today, you can rest from striving and struggling to be enough because Christ has made you enough in him. Would you take a moment and bow your head as I lead you in this first thing? Would you pray that God would help us to rest and relish as a church in the depths of the gospel? 